Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this special episode of Tell Me More. As you know, this podcast is really about conversations that patients have with healthcare providers. And we will be having some episodes of healthcare provider to healthcare provider conversations and how those could have an impact on a patient's healthcare outcomes. But today I want to share with you a sort of special conversation, actually, and it's one that I recently had with myself. And it's about such an important topic that I thought dedicating an episode to it would be really appropriate. So today is February 8th, and I have just finished doing Dry January. And I want to just go back and talk to you guys about how I got to that place where I decided to take 30 days and not drink any alcohol. Well, more importantly, I want to talk to you about how I got to a place where I felt like I needed to take a 30-day break from alcohol. I think that a lot of us are probably in similar situations, and I thought that coming from me as a physician, some of this information and some of this conversation with myself might sound familiar and might be helpful. So I want to give you a little background on my relationship with alcohol. I basically didn't have one for most of my adult life. I really didn't drink at all. There was a lot of alcoholism in my family, and I watched it lead to some pretty horrible things. And so I generally just had an aversion to alcohol all through college and med school. I really very rarely drank. I know people are like, what, seriously, you didn't drink in high school or college or med school? Yeah, honestly, I didn't. And then as an adult, I maybe drank very, very infrequently socially. I didn't really like how I felt after I had alcohol. But then I had this turning point, and it actually wasn't, you know, oh, this terrible thing happened, and I felt like I needed to decompress, and so I had my first drink, and I felt so good. It wasn't anything like that. It was actually a great thing, a very casual thing. We were out to dinner in 2016. Okay. This is 2023. So this was seven years ago. I am 51 years old. So basically I was in my forties when I first had this inflection point in terms of my alcohol use, but it was 2016. We were at the beach and we have, you know, a favorite restaurant that we go to down there in the summer. And we were at the restaurant and they had just added a special drink to the menu and they called it the barkeeper's punch. And it was intriguing. It was kind of like a surprise drink that the bartender would make and you didn't really know what it was or what was in it. You just got to try it. And I'm not sure what made me order this drink that day, but I did and I had it and it was amazing. It was so good, in fact, that afterwards I went to the bartender and said, you have to tell me you know, what was in this drink because it was so good. And he told me that it was a bourbon-based drink. And he told me that the bourbon that he had used was Angel's Envy, which really meant nothing to me at the time. I didn't know 
anything about bourbon. I just knew that I really liked this drink. So over that entire summer, every opportunity that I had when we were out, I would order a different bourbon-based drink, and I really enjoyed it. But I wasn't drinking anything at home. I was just drinking when we went out. Later on in the fall, we visited New Orleans, and I was talking to my brother-in-law and who lives in New Orleans, and I was telling him how I'd had these great bourbon-based drinks the past summer, and he was like, oh, have you ever had an old-fashioned? And I said, no, what's that? He was like, oh, you got to try it. So we went to a really famous New Orleans restaurant, and I ordered an old-fashioned. And of course, it was one of these restaurants that makes their cocktails with the same you know, passion and artistry that they make their food. And I ordered this old-fashioned, and it was just the best drink I have ever had. So for those of you that don't know, an old-fashioned is a very simple drink. In fact, it's quite old-fashioned. It has very few ingredients. It has bitters, a sugar cube or a splash of simple syrup, a giant ice cube, bourbon, a little whiff of orange peel along the edge, and sometimes a Luxardo cherry, which is a really fancy maraschino cherry that you can only get, you know, from Italy and it's super expensive, but delicious. So this very simple drink comes out. It's in a rocks glass, has a giant ice cube, and it was literally life-altering having this drink. And I'm embarrassed to say that because no single, you know, thing you eat or drink should have this transformative or lead to this transformative experience. But for me, it did and not necessarily in a good way. And I'll get to that. But I had discovered the old fashioned. I had discovered that I really liked bourbon. And so for several years after that, when we went out, I would have a drink. It was always either an old fashioned or some bourbon based drink, but I found myself going back to the old fashioned eventually to the point where I was like, why am I even ordering these other drinks? I know what I like. I'm just going to have this drink. But it wasn't until COVID that I started having old fashions at home. So everybody was homebound. Nobody was going to restaurants. And we happened to have, you know, a really nice area in our kitchen that is a bar. And we started trying different bourbons and just having them in the house. And my husband, Chris, started actually learning how to make the proper old fashioned, you know, watching YouTube videos and getting, you know, the history of the proper old fashioned and all that. Somewhere along the way, between early 2020 through 2021, I started to have very regular old fashions at home. And also, you know, when we were able to go out, I'd have them when we went out too. I very rarely had more than one. Usually it was just one. But over the course of those couple of years, I started having one every single night, at least one, usually one, sometimes one and a half, sometimes one. And then when the glass was empty and the ice cube was still there, I'd put a little splash of bourbon on top. Occasionally, I'd also have a glass of wine. When we went out, I would have definitely a cocktail, probably a second cocktail or a glass of wine. So on the weekends, I was having usually two drinks. And during the week, 
very consistently one drink. And I honestly didn't see a problem with that. I felt quite good. In fact, I found myself really liking how I felt after the drink. So, you know, COVID was super stressful time for everyone, especially for those of us in healthcare. I mean, in the beginning, I was terrified that I was going to get COVID and die. In fact, we decided at that time to make our wills. We had really been remiss and, you know, we just didn't have wills. We're both in our late 40s and didn't think of it. But then hearing about our colleagues in medicine that were dying from COVID, we felt like it was irresponsible not to have wills. So we did that. And we had very difficult conversations with our kids about, you know, what would happen if one or both of us died. I mean, back then, we really just thought the worst could possibly happen. And, you know, for some healthcare providers, it did. So we were having these hard conversations and we were so much uncertainty that every day was honestly a struggle. And every day I would come home and Chris would hand me this beautifully fashioned, old fashioned, and I enjoyed the drink. But more than that, I felt like the weight of the world lifted after that drink. I just felt lighter. I felt tremendously less anxious. You know, in those years, I was walking around with like this constant hum of anxiety, whether I was anxious about my own health or I was anxious about my patients or I was anxious about my business and my practice. You know, could we survive COVID? Would we be able to carry on? doing just televisits. It was just layers and layers of stress. My kids were home from college and unhappy. My youngest daughter was doing school from Zoom and unhappy. My husband's practice had basically come to a screeching halt because he's a pediatrician and people just stopped bringing their kids to the doctor at all. So there was tremendous amount of stress because his business was not doing well. So all these things would layer, and I would just feel like that old-fashioned took the edge off of all of it. And I'm someone who, when I'm anxious or stressed out, I clam up. Like, I stop talking, I withdraw into myself, and everybody around me sees it. So we have this house full of people, kids home who are stressed out, husband home who's stressed out, me home, I'm stressed out, but I'm not talking to anybody, which just elevates the stress in the house. And I found that after one drink, I just loosened up. And where I would have been withdrawn, I just started talking and I I was funny and I was nice to be around and I could just feel the tension around me all melt. I just liked who I was after one drink. I liked the relaxed version of me that I didn't have before. So I kept having that one drink at night and suddenly it wasn't so much because I was enjoying the bourbon or enjoying the craftsmanship of the cocktail or enjoying the flavors. It was because I was enjoying the me that I became after that one cocktail. Now, at the same time, I at 49, 50 years old, started going through menopause and, you know, was having the classic symptoms of menopause. And I probably should 
you know, dedicate another session just to that. But, you know, with menopause comes obviously cessation of your menstrual cycle, which to me was no big deal, but dramatically impacted sleep. So just poor quality sleep, hot flashes, which would contribute to poor quality sleep, night sweats. And the biggest thing of all that I noticed as I entered into menopause was this crazy brain fog. So I tell people like I all of a sudden got dumber. I couldn't remember patients' names. I would be in the middle of a conversation with a patient and they'd say something like, oh, I'm going in for a knee replacement next month. And then later on in the conversation, I say, oh, well, how's that knee? Is it still bothering you? And they would look at me like I had two heads, like, I just told you that I was getting a knee replacement. Were you not listening? And it was so distressing. But as I talked to other people, you know, it really became obvious that every woman that goes through menopause has some version of this brain fog. And then I got COVID, you know, not shockingly, despite being vaccinated and boosted and all that, I got a case of COVID and I felt like maybe that made my brain fog a little bit worse. And again, that was to be expected. So I wasn't sleeping well. I'd had COVID. I had menopause. I had all these reasons for brain fog and memory dysfunction. And it was just getting worse and worse. You know, one of the worst things that I noticed was, and don't worry, I'll get back to how, you know, the alcohol fits in here. But one of the worst things that happened once was I told my husband this very long story, this, you know, convoluted story with multiple parts and multiple characters and timelines and all these things. And it was really important story about my business. And, you know, of course he was empathetic and we had a really great conversation about it. And I absolutely felt better after talking to him, which is 99% of the time of what happens when I'm distressed about something. And then the next day I was talking to him and I started telling him the exact same story in the exact same way about the exact same people. And he just looked at me and he was like, honey, we just had this conversation literally yesterday. And I was like, no, 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 no. But did I tell you about this and this and this? And he was like, yeah. And then he reminded me about the entire end of the story, which he would have no way of knowing about if I hadn't told him the day before. That scared me. And I remember I, I actually started crying and I said to him, I said, I have to do something. I, I think I need to go on hormone replacement or take a sleeping pill or something. Like I can't function like this. And he was again, very empathetic, but I decided to just give it some time and see what happened. You know, I tried to take some oil of evening primrose. I put myself on clonidine, which is a medicine that can reduce hot flashes in the hopes that if I slept better, my brain fog would improve. Mind you, all the while, the doctor in me continues to have one cocktail a night, sometimes two. And I actually became even more dependent on it because not only did I have the stress of COVID and the stress of work and the stress of my body changing, but I also was super stressed out about this brain fog. So I thought, hmm, this is good. 
I'll de-stress about my brain fog by drinking nightly basically a poison that has a direct impact on my brain, except I didn't see that part at all. I just saw the comfort that I got from my drink. Fast forward to three months ago, I was at work and I had just seen a patient that I've known for a very, very long time. And our visit was over and she was on her way out of the office and she stopped in the hallway where I was and pulled me aside and said, hey, I'm worried about you. And I kind of laughed it off. I was like, what? Because, you know, I've lost weight because I had lost a bunch of weight over COVID as as I approached my 50th birthday. I was like, ah, you know, I want to be, you know, the best version of myself. So I made some pretty drastic changes in my exercise and my diet. Footnote, I did not reduce my alcohol consumption, but I did manage to lose like 30 pounds. And I said, oh, oh, no, don't worry. You know, everybody comments about my weight, but I did it, you know, the right way over two years. And, you know, I feel great better than I've ever been. And she was like, no, no, not your weight. And I was like, oh, you mean because I look tired? Well, aren't we all tired? Like this COVID's kicking all of our asses. No, it wasn't that. She's like, I think that you drink too much. And I was stunned. I was like, what did you say? And she said, I, I'm i worried that you drink too much alcohol. I was stunned silent. And I can't even remember what I said, but I ended that conversation. And I stewed for so long. You know, at first I was really angry. I remember like getting like a tremendous hot flash when she was talking to me, like, how dare she say such a thing? She's not in my life. She's not in my home. She has no idea. And as I started to think about where she may have gotten, you know, the notion that I drink too much, a couple things occurred to me. One, you know, I'm pretty active on social media through the practice Facebook page. And I was holding all these COVID webinars and I would often joke about how, you know, oh, I really needed my drink that night because so-and-so had happened or this was in the news or that was in the news. So with every webinar and every Facebook post in which I mentioned alcohol, you know, this thread started to emerge that I really enjoyed bourbon. And in fact, you know, for Christmas over those few years, my patients would start bringing me these beautiful bottles of very expensive bourbon which I obviously appreciated and enjoyed very much. But this patient that had stopped me in the hallway, she was, you know, silently observing all of that and concluded or assumed that I was drinking too much. She wasn't implying that I was an alcoholic, and she certainly was not saying that I was impaired in any way when I was doing my job, but she just got this vibe that alcohol had become a really big part of my life. And I was really angry at that. And I didn't know how to handle it at first, but I sat with it for a while and thought about it and thought, huh, is she right? Is one drink a night too much drinking? And if I'm honest, is it really one drink a night? It's probably more like on average one and a half drinks a night because there were plenty of nights I'd have two, especially on the weekend and sometimes maybe even three. 
so I started to do some reading and some research. Meanwhile, you know, there has been a ton of data coming out about the negative effects of alcohol. So I dug into it a little bit and I observed my own habits and I really started to quantify the amount of alcohol I was drinking. And by old standards, I was, you know, I would qualify as a moderate drinker, not social, not occasional, moderate. And I, you know, we had all been operating under this assumption that moderate alcohol consumption was somehow good for us, that it had these cardiovascular benefits. But I know a lot about alcohol because I'm a physician, I'm a scientist, I read everything. And what we know about alcohol is that it is a drug that directly impacts your brain. It can cross what's called the blood-brain barrier and basically get right up in there. We know that alcohol acts as a CNS depressant, so it depresses your brain function and it can also depress your mood. We know that alcohol has a tremendous impact on the quality of your sleep. So even though people can fall asleep faster after a drink, and that certainly happened to me, their quality of sleep wasn't good. And when I really thought about it, I thought, oh, well, I had assumed that menopause was waking me up and maybe it was, but I was waking up multiple times a night and I would have like this racing in my heart, like this anxiety feeling, especially after I had more than one drink. And that would completely disrupt my sleep. And then the next day, every day, I felt terrible. And again, understanding the negative effects of alcohol in hindsight, I was like, duh, of course alcohol was playing a role in this. So over that month after my patient, I did all kinds of research. I read this book by Annie Grace called The Naked Mind. I listened to the Huberman Lab podcast episode on alcohol, and I'll put these links in the show notes. But Basically, what I understood was there's no amount of alcohol that's good for you. I mean, technically, if you are someone who really has a, you know, powerful social engagement around alcohol and that social engagement improves your joy and your quality of life, like that could be a health benefit because we know that people who have strong social networks tend to live longer and better. But that's not a drink every night. That's not, you know, a drink with a splash of bourbon on top kind of situation. That's drinking socially, weekends, once in a while with your friends, a glass of wine, a cocktail here or there. So as all of this was sinking in, I thought I should really take a break from alcohol. And when I looked back at it, I was shocked. The last time I had gone without a drink every day was like the spring of 2021. I had decided to give up alcohol for Lent and didn't drink for 30 days. But since then, so since the spring of 21, so for 18 months, I had most likely had at least a drink every night. 
there may have been a period or two in there where I skipped that I don't remember. Like I had this horrible, horrible gum surgery a year ago and probably didn't drink for a few days, but essentially 18 months of a daily drink. That shocked me and scared me. And it was just very upsetting. And so I decided that I was going to take a break from alcohol and I was going to do dry January. So I had one drink on New Year's Eve and then woke up January 1st, you know, feeling the same like I usually do, tired, headache, eyes burning, you know, all the things that I just attributed to stress, menopause, poor sleep, all that. So that first week without alcohol was honestly one of the hardest weeks of my life. And it wasn't because I was craving alcohol. It wasn't because I was like fighting the urge to make a drink. It, I didn't really have that. I had all these other things. I had a terrible headache all day, every day. I had this constant feeling of buzzing or anxiety in my chest that I could not explain. Like I didn't really have anything to be super anxious about, but I was just anxious. My sleep was worse than ever. Like I was up 10, 12 times a night. I was having tons of hot flashes and night sweats and just feeling terrible. I was extremely irritable, you know, snappy at my husband, my team, you know, my kids, like all kinds of situations that I shouldn't have been snappy about. And I was. So naturally, I thought on the worst of those days, like I need a drink. And it wasn't really because I was craving the alcohol. It was because I was craving that, you know, Zen feeling that I got, but I didn't drink. And then it occurred to me that what I was experiencing was withdrawal. I was having withdrawal from a drug that I had allowed myself to become dependent on. And I wrapped it up in this package of a nightly drink is not too much, but clearly it was enough for me to become dependent on it. And I had written this narrative about how because I was never drunk or stupid or passed out that I didn't have a problem, that I wasn't drinking too much. But the reason that I was never drunk or tipsy or, you know, visibly intoxicated was probably because I had developed a tolerance to the alcohol. I was drinking so consistently that I stopped manifesting the behaviors of someone who had consumed alcohol. And that be only became apparent to me when I stopped consuming alcohol and went through withdrawal. So the early days of dry January were basically awful. But I had read other accounts from friends and people who, you know, assured me that there would be a turning point where I would start to feel better. And it was almost like a switch. Like around day 10, I suddenly felt better. Like I woke up for the first time without a headache. I slept so much better. And over the next several weeks, like those improvements just continued to happen. And the biggest area of improvement, you know, like I was still exercising. I was still eating well. Like my weight was perfectly stable. I didn't lose weight, but I didn't gain weight. And honestly, like my weight is perfect now. I didn't, that wasn't my goal. So everything was the same, but 
my mood improved, my sleep improved, the anxiety, the headaches, all that went away. But the biggest change was in my brain function. And I want everybody to hear me here. My brain fog lifted. It was honestly like a giant cloud just passed over. I was thinking clearer than I had in a really long time. I didn't forget important meetings or appointments. I had had this convoluted system that I was keeping of like multiple calendars and multiple reminders and lists of everything just to try to like fix (laughs) the brain fog that I was living with for so long. All of that got better. I suddenly felt like I gained my brain power back and I was accomplishing so much in so little time. By the end of January, I felt like a new person and I couldn't deny it anymore. Yes, I was going through menopause. Yes, I had been sleeping poorly. Yes, I had a tremendous amount of stress like all healthcare workers do right now. But I also was drinking way too much alcohol and too consistently. And mind you, I should say this too, you know, I told you guys that in my journey, as I approached 50, I I lost like 35 pounds. Well, you know, one or two ounces of alcohol is very different in someone that weighs 140 pounds versus somebody who weighs 107 pounds. And that's what was happening to me. I was drinking the same and had much lower body volume. And so I think at the end there, the alcohol, even though it was the same amount technically, was having a much bigger impact on me because of my body weight. So dry January was coming to an end and I was a little anxious. Like I didn't know what to do. You know, I felt like there was some expectation like, well, what now? Like, are you going to swear off alcohol forever or are you going to go back to drinking every night or what? But that was all pressure I was putting on myself. Like nobody cared. You know, in fact, my 15-year-old who's still at home, she had said something to me once that really stuck with me. I had, I can't remember when, but I had my evening drink and I was walking around the kitchen and I had set it down somewhere and I couldn't find it. And I said something out loud, like, I wonder where my drink is. And my 15-year-old was like, huh. I'm surprised it's not in your right hand where it usually is. And man, that stung. And I remember I, you know, brushed it off, but I definitely felt something icky about that comment. And then as dry January was ending and people or I or whoever was wondering internally, externally, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to drink again? I thought about my daughter and my, and I thought, I don't want her to grow up thinking that just because I'm not drunk or sloppy or tipsy or impaired, that a nightly drink is okay. That habitual drinking is okay. I don't want her to think that. And I am modeling for her, at least for the next three years until she leaves our house. I need her to see me as better than that. So she actually said something, you know, towards the end of January, like, oh, you know, I don't understand what the point of dry January is, mom, if you're just going to start drinking again on February 1st. 
And I said to her, I was like, honey, I don't know if I'm going to start drinking again on February 1st. I may, I may not. I don't really know what's going to happen. And she seemed satisfied with that. So, okay. So this is a very, you know, long winded way of trying to get to what I ended up doing. And like I said, today's February 8th. I didn't drink on February 1st or 2nd or 3rd. I had one glass of wine on February 4th. It was a Saturday night and we had ordered Italian food and I just had a little red wine with my meatballs <laughs> and it was fine. You know, I enjoyed it. We have, you know, several really nice bottles of wine that we drink very, you know, slowly but I didn't have any bourbon. I didn't have my old fashioned. And, and, you know, I wasn't like, I didn't take that first sip of wine and was like, Oh my God, finally. I didn't feel that. Like I felt like it was fine, you know, not great, not awesome, not terrible. It was just fine. And the next day I also felt fine. I didn't have a headache. I didn't feel hungover. You know, I, obviously those symptoms were the result of a cumulative effect of alcohol over many, many days. But what I figured out this past Saturday is I honestly could take or leave that glass of wine. And so for now, my plan is to leave it more often than not. I am not going alcohol free. I'm not swearing off alcohol. I may at some point, but not now. I am basically leaving my options open. And so the takeaway I want to leave with everyone is no matter who you are, how smart you are, how much you know about alcohol, about yourself, about addiction, it sneaks up on you. Alcohol is a slippery beast. And when the circumstances are all right or wrong, you can easily step into a habit that you don't even recognize as a habit until someone calls your attention to it. After all the research I've done, I want to also point out that it's pretty clear that any consistent use of alcohol is not good for you. It affects your brain power, as I illustrated. It increases your risk for all kinds of medical things, including cognitive decline, even dementia. But more importantly, alcohol is a carcinogen. You know, just moderate drinking increases a woman's risk of breast cancer by 10 to 15%. It has been linked to numerous other cancers. So think about that. Think about the negative effects. Think about how easy it is to slip into a habit. And then look at your life and look at how you physically feel. If you're someone like me who drinks habitually, do you really feel good? Do you really feel well? Are you explaining away your brain fog and your fatigue and your poor sleep? I mean, for me, it was like the perfect storm of COVID and menopause that really blinded me to the actual answer. But take a look at that. The other thing I want to say is if you're someone who's not, you know, a consistent drinker, but you have a consistent drinker in your life who you're worried about and you, you're not sure how to approach them. First of all, I would say take the chance and talk to them. Take the risk on being, you know, shunned or get the wrath of, you know, your loved one. My patient was really, really brave and I appreciate her more than she will ever know. 
But if you really care about this person, you owe it to them to say something. And you don't have to be a bully about it. You can be gentle. You can share, you know, the book that I mentioned that again will be in the show notes. You can share the Huberman Lab podcast episode. You can share this podcast. This is, you know, super casual. I have tons of facts and figures I can share, but that's not what this is about. I want this episode to be about just an honest, raw explanation of my story, how I got to be a habitual drinker, what it led to in terms of my well-being and my function, and how I ended it. I think this story will resonate with a lot of people. I think that many people who hear my story may feel less bad about themselves, less judged, because if it can happen to a doctor who clearly knows better, it can happen to anyone. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for hearing my long tale of alcohol and my relationship with it. It was a relationship that was rocky at times. It was beautiful at times. But ultimately for me, alcohol is toxic, not just physically. And so again, you know, I'm not writing off alcohol forever, but definitely taking a long break. And I hope that if you're considering the same, that this episode helps you do that. If you have a story that you want to share about your relationship with alcohol, I want to talk to you. I'm going to do a little side series on my podcast about that because I think it's such a huge topic and emerging is more and more important. So if you have a story, please reach out to me, email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. Thank you all for listening. And I can't wait for you to tell me more. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.